Luke chapter 22. And it reads, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. So when I got out of my car this morning here, um, around 9.15, I stepped out and I saw a familiar face, and I was shocked. Um, It was Sarah's mom, Betty. (laughs) Um, I went to high school on the south side of town um, and graduated about... 25 years ago, yeah, Uh, and um, one of my best friends during that time was Sarah, and Sarah's here today with her mom, Betty, Um, but if you know, if you've seen someone flash from the past, you know uh, they know all your business, (laughs) and the the stories that Sarah could tell about me, just don't ask, (laughs) don't ask, say God's done some work sanctifying me to get me here. But high school was also one of the darkest times um, of my life. There have been a few of those, but um, it was was a hard time for me. Uh, And I think the story is fitting with this morning's text. So I, um, my name is Shannon Jamal Hollimans. I grew up in West Michigan. Um, I grew up in a different sort of family. My mom is is Dutch, Christian Reformed, the usual. Uh, My dad is an immigrant from the Middle East, um, a Shia Muslim who uh, was born in Lebanon and grew up in West Africa. So um, I was the oldest of five kids, and it's very typical for Muslims in the Middle East to send their kids to Christian schools because those are the best schools. So my dad, when my mom said, we're sending our kids to Christian school, was like, okay, yeah, that's what people do where I'm from too. Uh, So we went to Christian schools, but we were very much outsiders in those communities. Um, As much as uh, people tried to... um, you know, make you feel like you belong. There are always people who don't belong in a community, right, for one reason or another. And for me, um, being looking different um, helped me feel really different and uh, didn't feel a lot of belonging in in that community. And that lack of belonging sort of came to a head when I was in high school. Um, My brother uh, was a freshman and I was a junior. And uh, my brother was... um, Sarah can tell you, he was very good-looking, tall, super athlete, right, um, and had the arrogant ego to go with it. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, so there were ladies usually flocking around him, and, um, and the guys didn't really like him all that much. So one day at school, um, he was playing a game of pickup basketball, and, um, I mean, this kid was dunking in seventh grade. He was very good. And uh, some guys got into a fight with him afterward and said, um, we're going to beat you up. 
and he said, uh, you couldn't get your white trash friends to beat me up. And uh, it sort of blew up from there. So they started spreading this rumor around our school that me and my brother were calling anyone who wore cowboy boots, which was everyone in 1993, <laughs> uh, that we were calling them white trash and using that as an excuse to sort of um, torment us. And this was before hate crime legislation, so it wasn't really called hate crimes at the time. But um, it started to build slowly, right? Like we would be in school and um, there'd be a sign, the N-word on my brother's locker. Uh, they'd throw trash in our lockers. They'd hit us in the hallway, um, call us names that I won't repeat up here, uh, told us to go back to Saudi Arabia, where we weren't even from, um, and uh, go to my brother's girlfriend's house with a baseball bat and brass knuckles to beat him up. and. Um, his parent, the girl's parents told him to leave, uh, came to my house once drunk um, at night and yelled at my mom in her bathrobe as she's trembling there, uh, and, and she asked them to leave, and they were quite rude, um, and it sort of came to a head one night. Uh, it was October 30, 1993, when um, we were at a football game, and uh, there was, my brother's only friends at that time went to a different school, and so we were sitting on the side of that school, and uh, he uh, said, I want to leave. So we got up to leave, and then a large gang of guys from our school uh, came to, to beat him up. And a fight broke out. Some noses got broken. Um, but my brother escaped. Uh, but when we got back to the house that night, my parents had said that there were death threats coming in, that someone had a gun at that football game that they intended to shoot my brother with. And... Um, and the police were there because they were coming to burn a cross in our yard. And so we just sat there while we saw the truck go back and forth um, on the street and sat with a police officer. Uh, it was a really hard time in my life and uh, something I don't want to go back to. It was really dark, but it, it shaped me and it made me who I am today. Um, and I didn't have many friends during that time except Sarah um, and her brother Chip were um, probably two of the only people who stuck by me. I'll get back to that story at the end of the sermon. Um, but this morning we meet Jesus at a dark time in his life, in the garden. Uh, although the name Gethsemane is not appear in this passage, we know from parallel gospel stories that that is where Jesus was that night. And it says it was his usual place. And Luke points out on the Mount of Olives, which sits just east of the city of Jerusalem on the other side of the Kidron Valley. Prior to this story, Luke recounted how Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples. And then we read about three interactions between Jesus and his disciples, interactions that disheartened him. First, we see the disciples arguing among themselves about who's the greatest. And then Peter insists on his undying loyalty to Jesus when Jesus knew otherwise. And finally, just before this morning's text, we read how Jesus shared what was about to happen to him with his disciples. And his disciples, who sorely, almost comically misunderstand what he's saying, um, made Jesus feel very much alone in that moment. They didn't get him. They didn't get what he was going through. And this is when Jesus went to pray. And he tells his disciples to pray that they might not fall into temptation because Jesus knows the struggle is real. 
So he moves away from them a little bit, just about a stone's throw, to be alone with God. As we imagine the scene of Jesus at prayer, we need to remember that prayer for Jesus wasn't quiet in a corner um, thing that you do very European way, right? Prayer was Eastern, and Middle Eastern prayer is loud. And that's why Jesus said earlier, go to a closet if you're going to pray, right? So if you're going to be screaming at God, not everybody's going to hear your business, but it's just between you and God. Um, But Jesus was probably mad at God in this moment, right? He's probably saying some things, and he's saying them loudly. If you've ever been to a Korean prayer service, you probably know what it's like to vocalize, to verbalize prayer, for prayer to get physical. And that's what Jesus was doing that night. He was in a conversation with God in agony, and it had to be a vocal, physical conversation. And we see a glimpse of Jesus' humanity here. A part of him that wanted to live, to turn away from what was about to happen. The word Gethsemane means oil press. And oil was, as it continues to be, a staple in the diet of the people of that part of the world. But that evening, it was not oil that was being pressed in the garden. It was God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. The disciples are not far from him, yet we read that they are so overcome by their grief that they fall asleep. Perhaps they could even hear him, agonizing in his prayer. And this is a detail we cannot miss here. The disciples are not being negligent of Christ's pain in this moment. The disciples are not being lazy, they're not being ignorant, and they're not being thoughtless. The disciples are mourning. They're overwhelmed by grief because the pain that he was experiencing was so real and they didn't know what to do about it. So they fall asleep out of sorrow because they didn't know what else to do. The disciples didn't know everything that was about to happen, but they know something's wrong. They see the pain that Jesus is in, and they're so exhausted by their sorrow, they cannot bear it. Sleep is their retreat. Friends, love carries pain. You don't need me to tell you that. But it is because of their love for Jesus that the disciples cannot handle the weight of that moment. So they seek to escape, and they close their eyes. The temptation that the disciples succumb to is all too familiar, I think, to many of us. The temptation to escape the world's woes. We might do this from sleep, but we might also do it in other ways. Watching Hulu or Netflix for hours on end. Retreating in the pages of a book. Managing online sports brackets and fantasy teams. These all aren't bad things in and of themselves necessarily, but they're things that we can use, like the disciples use their sleep, to distract us from the pain, from the woes of the world, from our families, from our loves that carry pain. Jesus carried that pain in that moment. And we are called as Christians, as people who say that we want to follow Jesus, to carry pain as well. 
because that's what love is. I was talking with a friend last week who recently released a book that she'd been working on for four years. She described to me how vulnerable she felt putting it out there for the world to see and how all she wanted to do was hide under the covers in her room. I know that feeling. I'm guessing a lot of us know that feeling. The society we live in today seems to be increasingly built upon the idea that we need to be entertained, that we need to escape from the pain of the world, that we need something to numb us from that pain, to distract us from those things we'd rather not face. Because honestly, who among us wants to face the realities of climate change? Who among us wants to think about gun violence in our schools? Who among us wants to think about the displacement of human beings that turns image bearers into refugees? And who among us wants to recognize the racism that is so insidiously woven into our structures and society that if you pulled it apart, you wonder if there'd be anything left. But if we call ourselves Christians, if we claim to follow Christ as our only Savior, we don't have the luxury of ignoring these things, of giving way to our escapist tendencies, And praise God, Jesus didn't do that in that moment either. In Jesus, the person of God took on human flesh, and the Jesus we meet in this morning's text took refuge in the garden, not as an escape from his responsibilities, but as a way to embrace them, to prepare for them. The passage this morning was crafted by the author of Luke as a chiasm. Chi is a Greek letter, um, looks like an X. And a chiasm is a literary device that's used where there are parallel verses. And as you get to the center of the parallels, you find the heart of the passage. You find the heart of what is going on there. And that's what we find here. At the center of this text, at the center of all the parallels, there is this line. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Jesus is in pain, and in his pain, an angel meets him to give him strength. His pain is not taken from him. He is not given a reassuring pat on the back or any words that we read of here. All we know is that Jesus is strengthened. And following this, we read his pain actually continued. There is sweat like drops of blood flowing from his face. Yet in this pain, in this agony, in this despair, Jesus is strengthened. Jesus is met with strength and with comfort through the power of an angel. God does not deliver him from these circumstances, but is there with him in these circumstances. The angel's appearance didn't bring an end to Christ's suffering, Instead, it gave him strength for what he was about to go through. People like to say that God will never give you more, you more than anything more than you can handle. Well, that is certainly not true. Ask anybody. But what is true is that God will not give you more than God can handle. That while Satan and the devil will throw everything at you and try to rip you down, there's nothing that God can't handle. 
And if we turn to Christ and find that strength, we can tackle those things. And it will mean walking through pain and agony. But we're not alone in that. The disciples faced their temptation, temptation that they met with resistance, but ultimately gave into. But the good news this morning is that in spite of them falling asleep, in spite of them giving into their temptation, God was not done with them yet. And God's not done with us yet either. We are strengthened for the pain that we're called to tackle, not in a way that delights in harming ourselves, but in one that is about love. Not escapism, but risk and courage. Not fear, but power. Mamie Till was strengthened by God. When her 14-year-old son Emmett was murdered and the law failed to prosecute his murderers, Mrs. Till chose an open casket with a glass lid to show the world what had been done to her son. When it would have been easier to hide under the covers, Mamie Till put her grief on full display that the world might learn from her loss. Rachel Den Hollander was strengthened by God. When she was the first woman to go public with her story of assault at the hands of Dr. Larry Nasser, she faced skepticism and scrutiny. And she would have to endure the story of her pain being made very public for the world to see. It was hard. It was painful, and it was agonizing, but she did it because she was strengthened by God for such a time as this. Michael Mangus was strengthened by God. In December of 2015, Dr. Larisha Hawkins, the first African-American professor to earn tenure at Wheaton College in Illinois, was suspended when she posted a photo of herself wearing a hijab and a quote from Pope Francis that said, Muslims and Christians worship the same God. While some of her colleagues stepped up to support her, many were silent, choosing not to get involved. But Michael Mangus, who is white, was one of the few who chose to speak up and support her. And like Dr. Hawkins, Michael Mangus learned the hard way that embodied solidarity comes at a cost. Dr. Mangus had been suffering from health issues the year prior, and he was told the next year he didn't need to come back to his job. His comments of support lost him his position, just as it did for Dr. Hawkins. I had the opportunity to meet Dr. Mangus a while back, and when I did, I called him a unicorn, because honestly, that is really what he looks like to me, not physically but through his actions. To meet a white guy who is willing to stick his neck out for a brown woman, that's unicorn-like in our culture. But he did what God was calling him to do, and he experienced pain as a result, but he said he wouldn't go back. When I was in high school, and it was really dark, and we were there that night waiting with the police for a cross to be burned in our yard, um, the cross wasn't burned, um, and my parents were told by the school administrators that um, they would have some teachers to escort us into school on Monday morning when we went back, but my parents said, no, thank you. Uh, our son is not going back to that school. 
because throughout this whole thing, the teachers, the administrators, a lot of times they knew what was going on better than we did, and they chose to cover it up. They chose to make excuses. They chose to say, boys will be boys. And so my brother transferred to the other high school, and I stayed at that high school for another semester and then graduated a semester early. My younger sister finished out the year there before transferring. Um, it was an agonizing road, and it was something I had to go through, something my brother had to go through, and he still struggles to this day because of what happened. Um, it shaped us. But God didn't deliver us from that agony. God was with us in that agony, and God strengthened us. And for me, I received strength from my friend Sarah and my friendship because they were there when most people turned away. And there are people that God puts in our lives, people that give us strength, right? Angels who are there for those moments, people who are there later to testify to what you've been through because they saw it, they know it, and they're with you on the other side. What if each of us committed to living like that, to living in ways that meant surrendering our privilege so that others might have the dignity that God gives them? What if we chose to be there for each other in those painful, agonizing moments that are so hard? Moments of death, moments of loss, moments of disease and illness. If we committed to loving each other that way, interpersonally, but also in larger systems, right? By the ways we vote, the ways we stick our neck out and say, maybe I'm going to vote for someone who doesn't do what's best for me, but does what's best for the poor and the vulnerable in my community. The world would change. The church would change the world. Because that's what we're called to do, to follow Christ in that. Let's pray. God, our creator and our sustainer, we thank you for the privilege of being called your sons and your daughters, your children, those who bear your image, those who reflect your image to those around us. God, it is agonizing at times. It is painful at times. So we thank you for strength that you give us for that journey. We thank you that while you may not deliver us from the pain, you do deliver us through the pain and sometimes by the pain. And we thank you that we don't have to do it alone. That you know that pain because you experienced that in the garden. And that you know what it means to be given strength because an angel appeared at your side. Thank you for the angels who appear at our sides. Help each of us to live that way and to be angels for others. God, we love you, and we pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our only Savior. Amen.